NBA on NBC. What is up, everybody? This is Jim Mylock, and you're listening to Pot of Fame, the podcast where we break down the careers of former athletes and decide whether or not you're going to call to the hall. On today's podcast, we're going to do several things. So uh, most of you are aware, but if you weren't aware, I have been out of the country for the last several weeks. Um, I got married um, back in January and then went on a honeymoon uh, out to Thailand and Singapore. So I've been out of the country for quite a bit. Podcast continued to drop, but I was really off the grid for a while. Uh, so what I want to do today is I've done this before for trips, but I want to give you a recap of my travels to Thailand and Singapore because I had a great time, had great experiences, ate a lot of great food, and I just love to tell everyone a little bit about it. But before I do any of that, I also want to talk about some major sports news that happened while I was out. I mean, you leave the country for over two weeks, big things are bound to happen. And sure enough, there was two, I think, pretty huge sporting events. And that's not even talking about Kyrie, you know, demanding a trade, which has happened since I got back. Um, the first was Scott Rowland, selected to the Baseball Hall of Fame on January 24th. He finally got in six year on the ballot. Um, so that was big news. And a lot of, I don't want to say controversy around him getting in, but I think some people think he doesn't deserve to be in. So I want to comment on that a bit and, and talk about his career. And then also Tom Brady retired last week. Um, this happened on my way back. It took well over 24 hours to get back from Singapore to, uh, to Chicago. That happened on that final travel day. Tom Brady has once again announced his retirement. And when he retired last year, I gave him quite a bit of a tribute. So I'm going to give him a much minor one this time around, just in case he comes back um, <laughs> again. So, I, you know, I really do think Brady's retired for good. I don't think he's going to be a Brett Favre type guy uh, switching back and forth. I think this is for good. But uh, just in case, may, might not spend as much time as I normally would. I think down the line, I'll dedicate an episode to him entirely, maybe when he's up for the Hall of Fame. Um, but I'll, I'll give a minor just kind of shout out to Tom Brady because he retired. So uh, for today, we're going to do a Thailand-Singapore uh, recap. We are going to talk about Scott Rowland, and we're going to talk Tom Brady. Um, this is a sports podcast, though, so I think we're going to talk about sports first and then go to the kind of travel uh, diary, I guess, uh, the unwritten diary of, of my experiences in Thailand and Singapore. So that is the podcast today. Uh, so without further ado, let's go to sports first. All right, so uh, I want to talk about Scott Rowland and Tom Brady in the sports segment uh, of today's podcast, and let's let's start with Scott Rowland because this, again, we we sometimes go all over the place, but this is a Hall of Fame podcast, and Scott Rowland is joining Fred McGriff for the class of 2023 uh, Hall of Fame class. So he was elected on January 24th. He'll go in this summer, um, and joining Fred McGriff, who of course was you know, elected earlier this year um, by the Veterans Committee. Now, Scott Rowland is someone, he actually was my my fourth episode ever on Pot of Fame. Uh, so that was back when I did it solo. Um, and it's kind of a rough episode, but if, if you want to learn more about Scott Rowland, go back and listen. I definitely wasn't at the top of my game, but 
it's 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 worth a listen still i would say um definitely not crafted like we do the episodes today but it's 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 something and maybe i'll do a man i probably won't so go listen to that if you want to but Quick facts about Roland, you know, eight-time Gold Glover, seven-time All-Star, 2,077 hits, 517 doubles, 316 home runs, 1,287 RBIs with 118 stolen bases. He hit 281 for his career with 122 OPS plus. And finished his career with a 70.1 war, which for you that care about advanced metrics, you know, anything over 70 is is basically a hall of famer. Uh, there's a few like Lou Whitaker um, and a few others that aren't in, but usually if you get to 70, you're almost a shoe in. Now, back in that podcast, I did all the way back in episode four. I said, Scott Rowland should be a hall of famer. And I fully stick by that. But when he got elected uh, again, I was in Thailand. So I found out, I think I found out on the way to uh, another, we were, I was flying I'm from an island we were on to Chiang Mai. And I'll talk about this a little later, but I think I found out at the airport. So I downloaded a bunch of articles and I read them on the plane. And I was reading a lot of comments of people and people seem to, not everyone, but some people that seem to think, you know, the St. Cooperstown's getting watered down. Scott Rowland was not a Hall of Famer. He's not a Hall of Famer. He, he was a great player, but he wasn't a star. You know, he, he wasn't. He's not someone that belongs in Cooperstown. That was the gist of it. And yeah, I, I try to put, I try to understand everyone's viewpoint and try to see where they're coming from. And I can get it slightly, you know, he played on some Phillies teams that were just okay. You know, he, he played for the Cardinals on some excellent teams, but of course, when he was on the Cardinals and again, they won that world, world series in 2006, that's a team with like Albert Pujols and Molina and, and then just bigger names than him. But Scott Rowland was a star, and he's one of the best third basemen of all time. And they talk about this star power thing, you know, he was in a star, he shouldn't be in. So Scott Rowland, right, made seven all-star teams, as I said before. If I look at the other great uh, third basemen of, let's say, you know, I'm 33 years old, of my lifetime, uh, we got Chipper Jones, who made eight all-star teams. So one more than Scott Rowland. He got 97.2% of the vote for the Hall of Fame his first year on. Now, I'm not saying Rowland, Super Jones, they're very different. Jones is much better. But star power, quote-unquote, one less all-star game for Rowland. Uh, Adrian Beltre, when, when he's up for the Hall of Fame uh, next, next year, he'll be a first ballot guy because he got well over 3,000 hits. Um, you know, Gold Glover, smacked a lot of home runs. Adrian Beltre made four all-star teams. Four. I don't hear anyone saying he wasn't a star. And then today's top third baseman, or of the last decade, top third baseman, Nolan Arenado, seven-time all-star, and he'll probably make several more. Um, but that that's kind of what, I mean, these are the contemporaries, I would say, for Roland for best third baseman in the last 33 or so years. He's He's right in there. Um, in terms of the all-star appearances, which I I feel like there's a correlation to the star power. I mean, did he ever carry a team? No, but baseball, there's a lot of players in the team. It's hard to carry a team on your own. He was, again, part of those great Cardinals teams. And some of those seasons, you look back, he put up similar, and even in a few years, 2004, I would say better numbers than Albert Pujols. Um, 
so this whole he wasn't a star thing I, I don't really get that and th- and then you know he's one of the best third baseman from a glove perspective of all time you know eight gold gloves uh, the only people ahead of him are Brooks Robinson, of course, because um, he's the greatest third baseman from a defensive standpoint of all time. Um, you know, Brooks had 16. Nolan Arenado has 10 already. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, 10 already. And then um, Mike Schmidt has 10. But then comes Scott Rowland at eight. And really, like, go gloves doesn't mean everything. But if you look at advanced metrics and then the eye test, which I think is very valuable, you know, I have rolling on my third base defensively Rushmore. It's obviously Brooks Robinson. It's Nolan Arenado. Scott Rowland's my number three guy. And then number four is probably some version of either Mike Schmidt, Buddy Bell, or Adrian Beltre. It's one of those three guys. Um, you know, Mike Schmidt has 10 gold gloves more than Roland, but Mike Schmidt's even come out and said, Roland's a way be- better defensive player than me. I mean, Roland was six foot four. He carried a lot of weight on, but he was athletic. Um, so athletic, especially early in his career on the Phillies. Um, I grew up again, I'm 33. So I grew up in that wheelhouse of like junior high, where all I'm doing is watching baseball tonight as a, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old. Web Gems, Scott Rowland was that guy, always making plays, always on Sports Center. Um, when I played third baseman in like Little League, I wanted to be Scott Rowland. Like, I think there's some bias on my end for sure, but advanced metrics, I test looking back as an adult now that knows a little more about baseball. Um, and the gold gloves, the, the guy's an all timer defensively, and then he was above average offensively, right? 122 OPS plus. Um, you know, over 300 home runs, over 500 doubles, over 2,000 hits. Like, this was a guy who was an all-time great defender who was above average offensively. This, I, again, I don't understand this, you know, kind of fight against Roland in the Hall of Fame. And if you're an events metrics guy, he definitely makes it for you. 70.1 career war, that's 10th all-time by a third baseman. 56.9 uh, career jaws, that's 10th all-time by a third baseman. So he's top 10 all time for their baseman in both of those advanced metrics categories. And then one last thing about Roland, the great Jason Stark, uh, that was what he wrote an article talking about Roland's Cassie. And the great thing about Jason Stark and why I appreciate his writing so much, he really digs deep into these like random clubs, right? Of this person did this, this, and this. And baseball gets really silly sometimes. Uh, you can make clubs about anything, but I thought these three clubs he kind of created stood out. So the top three uh, defensive third baseman in baseball history, uh, when you're measuring it by baseball references, defensive runs above average. So just basically this is an advanced metric of how good a defensive uh, player was, how many runs are they saving above average. So Brooks Robinson's number one all-time with 294. Adrian Beltre's number two at 216. Scott Rollins at 175 and third. Mike Schmidt, who I was talking about earlier, is is kind of down this list at 127. Uh, If you look at most seasons with a gold glove and 120 OPS plus at third base, so you win a gold glove and you have a OPS plus of over 120 at third base. Schmidt had 10 such seasons, Roland had eight, and Arenado has six. So that's kind of the line there. He's second all-time in that. And then this gets really... uh, 
this gets really specific, but I like it anyway. It just shows how rare uh, territory Rowan was as a defender and, and an offensive player, I guess. So that offensive defensive combo. Only players with 2,000 plus hits, 300 plus home runs, eight plus gold gloves, and 122 OPS plus. Got Willie Mays, Ken Griffey Jr. And this is any position, sorry. Willie Mays, Ken Griffey Jr., Al Kaline, Barry Bonds, Mike Schmidt, Johnny Bench, and then Scott Rowland and Dwight Evans. So the first six people on that list are some of the best players in MLB history. I want to say off the top of my head, Schmidt, Bonds, Griffey, Mays, Bench, all probably top 20 to 25 guys of all time. K-Line's maybe a little outside of that. And then Scott Rowland, and then Dwight Evans, who I've done a podcast and I believe should be in the Hall of Fame. That is a rare group of, again, top defenders who also put up great offensive numbers. So that's Scott Rowland for you. Um, think he should be in. I don't understand the people hating on it. Congratulations. Him and McGriff are a great class for this summer. So well done by the voters. Again, this was his sixth year on the bout. He got 76.3% of the vote after only getting 10.2% on his first year. So let's move on to Tom Brady. Again, Tom Brady retired last Wednesday, February 1st, uh, for the second time uh, in, in kind of two years here. I do think this will be his last time. I mean, the guy is 45 years old. Uh, he would turn 46 before the next season started. Um, I don't like Brady is not only the most surefire Hall of Famer there probably has ever been, but honestly, the only conversation we have about the Hall of Fame with him is should they waive the waiting time and just induct him? you know, in the 2024 class. Hell, just put him in with the 2023 class this year. I mean, the waiting time seems a little silly for Tom Brady. And it's been waived in other sports before. I know for hockey, Gretzky, it was waived for baseball. Uh, Clemente, Roberto, after he passed away, tragically, uh, it was waived. Tom Brady, I mean, he could wait, but I don't see why he should. Um, he basically owns every record, every passing record uh, ever and every record for a quarterback almost ever. I actually would, I'm sure there's some records, some random records he doesn't own. Like I know he doesn't own most passing yards in a game. Um, he owns most passing yards in a Super Bowl, but you look across everything in the gap too. And some of the numbers are staggering. Like, um, you know, all-time passing yards, right? He's first at 89,214. Next up is Breeze, almost 9,000 yards behind him. Touchdown passes, he's at 649. Behind him is Breeze, who's about 80 behind him. Game started, 333. In second place is Brett Favre at 298. That's almost two full seasons behind him. But if you look at the playoffs, the gaps get even larger. Passing yards in the playoffs. He has 13,400 passing yards in the playoffs. Second is Payne Manning with 7,339. And then all the way in third is Big, Big Ben, Ben, ben Rollsberger, 5,972. So Tom Brady has well over double the amount 
of Big Ben and almost double the amount of the guy in second, Payne Manning. Touchdown passes, same kind of disparity. 88 touchdown passes for Brady in the playoffs all time. Second is Montana at 45, almost half of what Brady has. Rogers also, Aaron Rodgers also has 45. And then the Super Bowl gets even more ridiculous. Most pass, passing yards in Super Bowl history, 3,039 3, passing yards for Brady. Second is Kurt Warner with 1,156, so almost three times more for Brady. And then passing touchdowns in a Super Bowl, Brady has 21. Second is Joe Cool. That is Joe Montana with 11. So he just destroys everyone. Um, you know, he has the most Pro Bowls ever by a quarterback, the most Super Bowls ever by anyone, the most Super Bowl MVPs with five um, from anyone. Seconds Montana with three. And again, he has seven Super Bowls. I didn't mention that before. If you're looking at quarterback backs, Montana and Bradshaw have four, Aikman have three, and all the other greats have less than that. It's just, it's staggering. And, and I guess the thing that stands out for me with Brady is, you know, when, when I was growing up as a kid, I loved Dan Marino, the, the great Miami Dolphins quarterback. Um, and when Marino retired in 1999, he almost owned like every passing record, not playoff passing records, but regular season passing records, touchdown passes, uh, in a season, um, touchdown passes for a career, passing yards for a career. Like he was the guy that owned all the records, right? 1990 retired. He never won a Super Bowl, but because he had those passing records, I was always like, you know, he's one of the best quarterbacks of all time. And he still is. Nothing in Tom Br- or Dan Marino. He still is. But the crazy part is, and I know the game's changed. And I know passing is much easier. And I know Dan Marino probably put even crazier numbers today. But I just think of how I looked at Dan Marino when his career ended. I was like, no one will ever beat these records. He's so far ahead. He had 61,361 passing yards when he retired. 420 touchdown passes. How can anyone beat that? And then I look at Brady now. And and Brady ended his career with just under 28,000 more passing yards than Dan Marino. And 229 more touchdown passes than Dan Marino. And I see, this guy blew those numbers out of the water. And he joined the league the year after Marino. It's just, it's crazy. Because again, I thought Dan Marino was one of the best quarterbacks of all time with no Super Bowls and all those records. Tom Brady comes along, blows all those records out of the water, and then also has seven Super Bowls with five Super Bowl MVPs. He is the greatest football player of all time. I was out there as a debate between him and Jerry Rice, but he is the greatest football player of all time. And he's up there in the running with, you know, Gretzky as a player who dominated his sport more than anyone else. Um, you know, I think Michael Jordan is the GOAT for the for basketball, but I think the, the, the distance between MJ and some of the other greats, the Bill Russells, Magic Johnsons, LeBron James of the world, I don't think the gap there is is that big i think mj's the best but i don't think the gap's that huge with wayne gretzkin who's ever the second best hockey player that gap's huge uh the gap between tom brady and i think now the second best player in nfl history i think it's quite huge i really do um he covers both the winning aspect the longevity aspect the record aspect he he covers all three bases right like you look at LeBron, 
I'm just going to talk because I have younger listeners. They know LeBron. LeBron has the longevity thing down, right? He's played forever. He's going to break the scoring record probably by the time you listen to this podcast or soon after. He's fourth all-time in assists. His numbers are all-time, so he's got those records. But when it comes to winning, he has four NBA championships and four MVP awards in the finals, which is great. But it's not Jordan with six. It's not Kobe with five. It's not Bill Russell and some of those Celtics with 11. He doesn't have that part. Tom Brady covers all three bases. Winning Super Bowls. Setting records. He, he's, he's longevity. He's got it all. And that's what makes him so special. So that is my sports recap of the things I missed that I would have talked about in the pod if I was here. So without the way, if, if all you like to listen to on, on my podcast is sports, feel free to start the rest of your week, download another pod. But I, I do know from, I can track this stuff. When I've posted pods on some of my travels, I, I get a lot of viewership, which is why I'm going to continue to do this whenever I make a big trip. So coming up next is my honeymoon recap of being in Thailand and Singapore for the last two weeks. So if you want to continue on, um, here we go. All right. So um, for those that of, of you that are sticking with us here, uh, I'm going to try to keep this short, but I, I, I love to do these recaps because one, it's just fun to talk about the trips, but two, I hope that I can, uh, for people listening to the pod that maybe haven't traveled to some of the places I've been or thinking about it, hopefully I can either, you know, if you're on the fence, I can get you on one way or the other. Hey, that sounds great. I want to do this. Uh, or no, I, I'll save my money. I'll go somewhere else. Um, so I got married, uh, January 14th and it was in, in Chicago. So of course it was, uh, it's the dead of winter here, but we actually got pretty good weather. We got, we lucked out and it, it was a beautiful wedding. Um, couldn't have, I couldn't have asked for a better day, all the friends and family. And it was amazing. So we get married on Saturday night and we wake up Sunday and we actually go, um, a group of us from the wedding go to a bar uh, that morning to watch the beginning of the uh, playoffs. That was the first round of the playoffs. And then we left that night, Sunday night for Thailand. Um, not ideal to leave the day after your wedding or the day after your wedding, especially when you're out till two in the morning to fly all the way to Thailand. But that's kind of how it all worked out. We want to take advantage of the day off we had for Martin Luther King Day. And just flight-wise, that's what worked out. So it took us almost 30 hours to get to where we were going in Thailand from Chicago. We left Sunday night, Chicago time, and we got there to, to um, the island we were going in Thailand called Koh Samui. Um, I'm sorry, Koh Samui. We call it Koh Samui. The locals call it uh, Koh Samui. It took us 30 hours to get there. So again, we left Sunday night. We got there Tuesday afternoon. Um, we flew through Turkey. We had a layover in Turkey in Istanbul for four hours. We flew down to Bangkok. We had a layover there. And then finally, we made it to our island. And again, that pronunciation is going to kill me here. So uh, what that island stands for in Thailand, it's Coconut Island. So I'm going to call it Coconut Island um, from here on out. So we, I don't keep butchering it. But it's the second largest island off Thailand. It's on the east coast of Thailand. Um and it's just a beautiful place. And what we want to do is we want to go there at the beginning of our honeymoon to relax. Um, 
because the wedding was tiring as hell. And then for the back half of our trip, we were going to then fly to Chiang Mai, which is inland in northern Thailand for five nights, and then end the honeymoon in Singapore for two nights before flying back to Chicago. So we had eight nights on Coconut Island, five nights in Chiang Mai, and two nights in Singapore. So I'm not going to talk about Coconut Island too much, uh, just because we really didn't leave the resort, um, which is the first time I've ever really done this in my life, just go do nothing. But I, I do have to spend a little time here because I don't think I'm ever going to be, one, at that nice of a resort again, and two, as relaxed as I was. Uh, so this, again, this was my honeymoon, and um, we really went all out, just kind of balled out on the honeymoon and, and stayed somewhere we would never stay in a million years uh, for any other trip, but we stayed at a Four Seasons there. And I had never stayed at a Four Seasons before, anything even close to that quality. And the, the price is is kind of staggering, honestly. Um, and I found it a little ridiculous how much it cost. But I was like, hey, this is the honeymoon. We're going to do it. Let's enjoy it. But I got to say, eight nights there at a Four Seasons, I, I kind of get how they can charge that much because it was above luxurious how we were living. I mean, I, it's the closest I've ever felt to, to being some sort of like celebrity in, in terms of the stay we had at the Four Seasons. The service was next level. If you even on your face showed an expression like you needed something, someone would pop out of nowhere to try to help you. Uh, you were not allowed to pull out your own chair to sit down for dinner. You were um, not allowed to put your own napkin on your, I mean, you could, but they put the napkin on your lap before you ate. They were at dinner and breakfast. They were stopping at your table every minute, I felt like, to, to refill your glass, um, to check on you, to remove uh, a dirty dish. Uh, the, the Everyone was just going above and beyond to try to help you at all times. They would come in your room and I feel like clean it like three different times a day. At night, they'd leave slippers by your <laughs> by your bed. Uh, I just can't speak enough and highly enough of the level of service I got at that Four Seasons uh, where you just kind of feel like a king. Um, and I really didn't want to ever leave the resort. Uh, they, they gave gifts every day. They just they would leave gifts, mini gifts in your room every day. There's complimentary food just going around at times. Uh, could not rave about the service enough. But the thing I'm going to spend the rest of my time on about this, because we only really left the resort once to tour the island. And honestly, halfway through the tour, I wanted to go back to the Four Seasons. I was like, I, I just want to be back, sit at the beach, go to the pool, have cocktails and eat. But the thing, the highlight for me, and anyone that knows me very well knows this, but I, I, I love breakfast food. And the, the brunch at this Four Seasons was, was absolutely next level. Um, it's the greatest all-you-can-eat brunch I've ever experienced and probably ever will. Um, you walk in in the morning. And the great thing about Four Seasons, too, it's never crowded. There's people there, but they, they don't overcrowd these things. So you're always kind of, there's always plenty of seats. You never feel like you're in a line or anything like that. But you, you, you come into this breakfast uh, breakfast kind of brunch, this, I'm sorry, this breakfast buffet. And you're greeted first by everything's in glass, which uh, again, anytime you drink out of glass, it just seems like a better experience, but you, you enter this room and there's like six different fresh squeezed juices, all in glass bottles, 
uh, every day and they're different juices every day. So, you know, fresh orange juice, fresh watermelon juice, fresh coconut juice, fresh mango juice, fresh apple juice, fresh banana, like blueberry smoothies, raspberry smoothies, um, dragon fruit juices, like any fruit you can imagine every day, there was a variety of juices to choose from. And I would have like four or five of these. I was hydrated as hell out there. And if you've never been to Thailand, the thing I tell everyone is the, the fruit out there, it tastes better. It's, it tastes sweeter. It's the freshest fruit you could find. Cause it's, 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 I feel like being sourced um, quicker and it's so, it's funny because some of the fruits there taste a little different. Like the bananas there taste a lot different because of where they source them from. The oranges there, they use like green oranges. It's a like a neon orange. It looks very different than our orange juice. And it is the, it's like crack, their orange juice. I'm not a big OJ person here. I could not drink more orange juice there. So before you even get to the, the spread, you're just greeted by all these juices in these nice glass bottles and you just pick and choose and you keep going up and having them throughout the meal. But you walk into this room and they have, you know, on, on-site pastry chefs and on-site bakers. They have like 10 fresh baked breads uh, just waiting for you with 10 to 15 homemade jams and butters for you to spread on that bread. So everything's homemade there. They have a different bakery assortment every day of different muffins, cakes, uh um, like donuts, um, trying to think of like what else, like cinnamon twists, basically any kind of pastry you can think of. They had, they had this coconut brioche that was amazing. Then they had all these mini freezers that were kind of see-through that had different yogurts, coconut yogurt, Greek yogurt, you know, yogurt with fruit in it. Um, you know, fruit salads, uh, muesli combinations. So they had all these mini fridges that you just open, pick out your own individual container, put on your plate, keep going. They had all the fruit you could imagine. They, of course, had normal stuff like a guy making omelets, a guy making pancakes, a guy making waffles. Um, and then they had all these like, you know, traditional stuff you see at a brunch, like sausages, bacon, and these things rotate every day. So it's new. And they also had all these Thai foods imaginable. Like, it was everything I could ever want and it's all homemade and it's all fresh and it's, it was perfect. And I spent every day there, I, we'd spend an hour and a half to two hours just sitting out on this balcony, overlooking the Gulf of Thailand, drinking Americano, drinking the juices and eating three to four to five plates where I wasn't hungry until dinner every single day. Uh, it was glorious. I'm getting hungry thinking about it. I'll probably, I, I came back and I just went to the store and I bought all these fancy expensive juices because i'm trying to recreate it and they don't taste anything near the quality and i get it you know it's not fresh it's been bottled somewhere it's then transported to my local grocer all that stuff but i i, I was living large at this breakfast spread and uh, i don't think i'll ever come across anything quite like that again um so that's that's i i had to highlight that because i can't stop thinking about it but the four scenes overall all-time experience. If you ever have the means or you have the means today and congratulations if you do to go to one, I highly encourage you to go to a Four Seasons Resort. Um, all we did was we woke up, we went to that brunch, we went to the beach, then we moved to the pool around two. We had cocktails, fan and all the cocktails phenomenal. 
we'd get ready for dinner, we'd go to dinner, we'd have another couple of drinks, we'd go back, we'd go to bed, we'd get like a ton of sleep, wake up the next day and do it all over again. I'm someone that's very active. I, I do not like lounging on vacations. I do not like beach vacations. I need to go be doing stuff. I was really worried going on this trip for eight nights that I would get bored halfway through and want to leave. I, I did not want to leave. I didn't want to leave the resort to go anywhere on the island. I could have done that for several more weeks. Uh, it was one of the most relaxing, rewarding experiences I've ever had. So Coconut Island, or again, I'll try to pronounce it one more time, Koh Samui. Um, highly recommend if you can get out there. It's a beautiful island. We had sun every day. It was perfect. But after eight nights, um, we did have plans to go actually do stuff uh, in other places around Thailand, go do some activities. Went out to Chiang Mai um, and spent five nights there. And then um, again, two nights in Singapore. So we get to Chiang Mai and, and Chiang Mai is a, a fairly big city in Northern Thailand uh, that has a lot of stuff you can do in town, but also a lot of stuff around it. So this is where you kind of go to, you know, elephant sanctuaries or elephant parks. This is where we can go kind of uh, to national parks out there and go hiking, exploring for several nights. There's just a lot you can do. And, and again, it was a good change of pace from being on Coconut Island and just chilling the whole time. Um, but it, it was, you know, a lot less relaxing. We were exhausted at the end of every day. We were also not at a four seasons. So I'm going to be such a hotel snob now. We stayed in a very nice Marriott, a very nice room. But I was just like, man, this is not the four seasons. And, and nothing ever will be. But in Chiang Mai, uh, did a, some great activities. You know, there's a, a million temples over there. So saw a ton of temples, a ton of the culture there. Um, the great thing about Chiang Mai and honestly, almost all of Thailand, the American dollar goes extremely far there. And everything just seems very inexpensive to us compared to what we pay in America for stuff. Like in Chiang Mai, you can go to, uh, you know, a restaurant and get an appetizer and you can get an entree and you can get drinks. And your bill will be like 12 bucks American. You can go to breakfast and get an entree and coffee and juice. And your your bill will be like $4 American. Um, so your money goes really far there. So we ate very well there. Uh, there's a lot of street food, a lot of giant, like almost seems like miles long uh, street festivals at night where there's all the food and gifts you could ever want to so walking through those navigating those eating all the street food uh is always a good time there we did do an elephant sanctuary out there where we got to go feed the elephants bathe the elephants um which is just an incredible experience elephants are just beautiful creatures um it's really important though for anyone going to thailand make sure you go with a a um a company that's doing it the right way, I guess. There's a lot of companies out in Thailand that do exploit elephants. Um, and that's not what you want to see. You don't want to be somewhere where people are riding elephants or the elephants have any sort of chains or harnesses on. Um, there's a lot of great organizations in Thailand that are more like rescue parks where they're rescuing elephants from the logging industry or from circuses or from some of these parks that treat the elephants poorly. So you can find those kind of sanctuary type parks for uh, elephants. That's what we did. Um, you know, you, you, you kind of, you go to the park and the elephants are there. 
but they're, they can kind of do whatever they want. If they want to be around you, they can, but if they don't, they go away. They're not on, you know, leashes or anything. There's no, uh, you know, controlling them. You kind of just hang out with them. And one, that's just a much more ethical thing to do. Um, but two, it's, the elephants are just happier in, in that. I think that just provides a better experience for you. And trust me, I couldn't have had a better experience than what we got to do. We, we fed them for, I feel like hours, we prepared the food, we fed them and you're just feeding them whole bananas and things like that. Um, you're petting them. You, you can hug them. You walk alongside of them around. We went like on a hike with the elephants and the elephants just kind of roamed ahead of us. And honestly, at one point you look up and you realize how big they are. It looks like dinosaurs kind of parsing through the trees. Um, and then you bathe them at the end, which is, which is, kind of hilarious but too like <laughs> the elephants are like shin in the water you're in and it gets a little let's go a little little dicey at points but uh it's an excellent experience that anyone going to to thailand um you have to do it again just make sure you do your research and do it the right way um we also did like cooking classes out there which are excellent couldn't highly recommend uh, highly recommend you know we did a food tour out there which is great because again we don't, when you go to somewhere like Thailand, you don't always know where to go and where to eat. And a, a food tour will take you to where the locals eat, where there's not tourists everywhere. And that's my goal. I, when I travel somewhere foreign, I don't want to see a bunch of tourists. I don't want to see a bunch of people, honestly, that look like me. I want to go where the locals are eating every day. I want to know what kind of food they're getting. And that's where the food tour took us. Um, and we had excellent food along the way. And the guides, the guides, honestly, everywhere in Thailand are excellent. They're really well they do everything very well. They're they're very well trained in their craft. And um, all the tours we did there were, were fantastic. So Chiang Mai was exhausting. We, we did a ton there. And then finally, the last part of the trip was Singapore. There for two nights. And I, I have to say, I, I think I was inspired to go to Singapore, partly because, you know, several years ago, I saw the movie Crazy Rich Asians. And I'm seeing, first of all, I didn't know much about Singapore before I saw that movie, which makes me sound stupid, but that's just the truth. And I see Singapore in this movie and I'm like, what is this place? This looks like an amusement park. Uh, you know, the Marina Sands Hotel where it looks like a spaceship has landed on top of three buildings. You know, they have all these futuristic, it looks like you're in the future there. And I saw that movie, I was like, man, I gotta get there sometime. Well, Singapore kind of paired well with going to Thailand. So Stopped there for two nights, and honestly, Singapore kind of delivered. It it, it kind of was the future. I, of course, did have to stay at the Marina Bay Sands, um, which is the, the spaceship on top of the three buildings. And on top of that spaceship is an infinity pool where you're on like the 54th floor, I think it is. And it looks like the pool is kind of, you know, falling off the building. It, it's incredible. The views all time. You can only get up there if you stay at the hotel. And if we were going all the way out east to Asia, I had to stay at the hotel. So we were there. I thought it was worth it. Um, again, we were only there for a few nights, but we tried to do as much as possible. Um, tried to see all the major sites. There's all these like nice gardens and parks you can go discover. There's like this park right behind the Marina Bay Sands where there's like an indoor waterfall that's like five stories high that you can go and check out. All this wildlife from all over the world. There's... Um, there's a botanical gardens out there. And I think one of the coolest parts about Singapore is, again, it does seem like you're in the future, but 
the city itself, I think, is the closest I've seen to somewhere trying to be like a utopia. Like you get that feeling. There's no trash anywhere. There's a ton of laws. Like if you, this is, I think everyone knows like this one, but like if you chew gum, you spit it out, it's like a $500 fine. Um, Littering's like a thousand dollar fine or something. So the streets are immaculate. Um, 91% of people in Singapore own their own home. So you don't really see homelessness uh, in two days. I saw one homeless person, um, which in a major city in America is, you know, that's just not going to happen. So you see that it's great. Um, the food's excellent. They got these hawker stalls everywhere where, um, you know, it's, it's like four to $5 meals and just excellent food there. Um, and then the, the coolest thing I think is the, is the amount of, um, the amount of trees and plants and greenery, I guess, in the city. So they have this mandate in the city where imagine building a building up, right? You knock out a city block to build a tower, a skyscraper. Well, they do an approximation of how many plants, trees would be in that plot of land that you bulldozed. And you have to include and incorporate that amount of plants in your on your building or in your building. So you see these buildings with like trees kind of sticking out of them or, you know, fl- floors that are only half a floor because the rest of the floor is an outside garden or the rooftops having giant gardens on them. Or some of the buildings just have like every several windows across, there'll be like a giant tree kind of there. It makes the architecture, you know, not look like a concrete jungle, but just this like, again, utopian society where there's plants kind of growing out buildings. Part of it kind of looks like when a city goes under in like a natural disaster movie or, you know, a city has been untouched for like a thousand years and there's like green shrubbery growing over everything. This is more like strategically and tastefully put into the buildings, but it really does make the city stand out from anywhere else I've been. Um, Really enjoyed Singapore. Was only there for two nights. That was not long enough. I definitely need to go back and do a lot more. Um, but got as much as I could out in like the 36 hours was there. And I flew back home to America. I'm following that. It was only like a 24, 25 hour trip this time home. Um, you know, came across the other way. So Singapore to San Francisco, San Francisco to Chicago. So from start to finish, I actually went around the world since we went, you know, East first, uh, you know, toward Turkey then to Thailand, and then again, flew over the Pacific on the way home. So flew over both Atlantic and Pacific on the way to and from uh, Thailand, Singapore. So that is my trip in a nutshell. Um, Before we get you out of here, I do want to do the three, three, and three I did when I did the uh, Africa trip recap, as well as my road trip uh, recap. So this is, I guess, my third trip recap. Uh, If anyone remembers the three, three, and three, it's the three best things I ate, the three best things I did, and the three best books I read. So going for the three best things I ate, yes, we are going to circle back to the breakfast breakfast buffet at the Four Seasons. Um, I want to say the entire thing, but that's not fun, so I'm going to narrow it down to four specific items. Um, and again, it was Coconut Island, right? So almost all these things have coconut. Actually, everything has coconut in them. So the first thing, uh, there was a pancake maker, right? He makes pancakes on demand. So at first I was like, can you put bananas in them? And he started doing that every day. And that was awesome. 
Then I found there's the coconut yogurt. So I was like, let me sprinkle that on top. And then the homemade peanut butter. So by the end of the trip, I was having banana pancakes with coconut yogurt on top as like a whipped cream type deal. And then homemade peanut butter, because no, everyone knows that peanut butter and bananas goes together better than anything else in the world. So that was probably my number one star from the breakfast buffet. I also every day, so I didn't mention this earlier. Glad I circled back. They had that whole buffet spread, right? I talked about, but then there was also a menu you could order to order like specialty items. There was like 10 or 12 specialty items. One of these specialty items was island oatmeal. Sounds not very fancy, but it was oatmeal made with coconut milk to make it super creamy, toasted almonds and coconut shavings on top. It was a great way to balance the rest of the unhealthy stuff I was eating and I had it every single day. So island oatmeal is a star. One of the things unhealthier I was eating almost every day um, to help out was the coconut French toast. So this was another two order type item. And this was like a giant stick, like a giant French toast stick with French coconut shavings on top. And this was so decadent, you really didn't even need syrup, but the syrup was there and you know I was using the syrup. And then finally, the coconut brioche, which I brought up earlier. So this was, I'm upset. I found this out the second day before I left. I was like, oh, let me try this. And this wasn't even like a roll. Like it looked just like a brioche roll, but inside there was like some sort of coconut jam. And it was the sweetest, most moist bread I've ever had in my life. It was like gooey. It was such a dessert, such a treat that I was stocking up the rest of the trip. Sadly, though, I only had a couple more breakfasts after I discovered it. So I just doubled up the last few. Um, but the coconut brioche was a star. So coconut French toast, coconut brioche, island oatmeal, which was made with coconut milk and banana pancakes that I then topped with coconut yogurt and homemade peanut butter. All four of those items had coconut in it. So I had a coconut fix on coconut island, which makes sense. So that all counts as number one for the things I ate. Number two um, was something I ate in Singapore um, in, in one of the hawker stall, uh, stalls or hawker centers. The, or the Singapore name is Chai Tao Kwai. I probably really, mispron really mispronounced that. The American version or what they also had on there was fried carrot cake, which I can say. Now I say fried carrot cake, you probably think the carrot cake we all know fried. That is not what it is at all. There's actually no carrots whatsoever in this. It's actually a savory dish made with radish cakes, which are just made with steamed rice flour water um, and shredded white daikon. And then it's stirred with eggs, preserved radish, and other seasonings. And it's made in this like mash of just food. It's kind of brown colored. It doesn't look that great. But oh my God, does this taste... It's, I had it almost every instance I could get my hands on it. It's super savory. It's super delightful. I don't know if I've ever really ate too many radishes in my life. It does not taste like radish. It is a, I would say it's better than the dessert carrot cake in terms of taste overall. It was just excellent. So that's in Singapore. I've been feverishly searching Google to see if it's anywhere in Chicago. I have not yet. So if you're in Chicago, you know where I can get fried carrot cake, let me know. The final kind of top three thing I ate. So first was the entire breakfast buffet. The second was the fried carrot cake. The third was cow soy in Chiang Mai. And this is a, I love curry. And this is a variation of curry I'd never experienced before. It's deep fried crispy egg noodles and boiled egg noodles with pickled mustard green shallots 
lime ground chilies and meat in a curry-like sauce containing coconut milk. This was something I tried on the food tour and then tried several other times while in Chiang Mai. And what I would equate it to, honestly, it's like, it's not as much a curry to me as it tasted like a really good ramen to me. It was, it was a really thick ramen. Uh, it was super spicy, super tasteful. One of the best curries I had the whole time I was in Thailand. And trust me, I was always eating curry. Khao uh, soy. Um, get that if you ever go to Thailand. If you're at a Thai restaurant, they have it. Try it out. One of the most flavorful. Um, it had levels, right? Like I, I'm no chef. I don't try to be. It had like levels of flavors, though, that every bite, there was something else. And I was just like, I was being trying to be polite because I was with this tour guy. But the first time I was like almost like slurping out of the bowl. Uh, because it was so good trying to get every lash in inch of, of that broth in my mouth. Um, so those are the top three things I ate. And honestly, everything I ate was fantastic. Thailand is like a paradise for food and Singapore is right alongside it. You can't go wrong. All the food's good. The fruit's fresh. I could go on and on, but I want to move on. So the top three things I did, you know, I talked about the elephants in Chiang Mai. That's definitely number one. I talked about the cooking class in Chiang Mai. That sounds just like a cooking class, like, oh, that's nice. But you they give you a menu. You cook like five different items on the menu and everyone cooks something different. And you see the garden they pick the food from. Um, everything's kind of made on site. Some of the food I made, again, it wasn't hard. It was very step-by-step -step and the teacher was great. The instructor was great. But some of the food I had there was some of the best I had in Thailand because of how well sourced the food was. Um, so I highly encourage you do that. And then Infinity Pool in Singapore was just sick. Like it was, it felt not real. Again, I would compare Singapore to like an Asian Vegas. Um, stuff like this Infinity Pool, that would be something like I would see in Vegas where you're overlooking this giant skyline of lights and you're sitting in a pool 54 stories up. It, it's just kind of unreal. If you don't know what I'm talking about at the Marina Sands, this infinity pool, go check out a picture. It was, uh, it was pretty unreal. And then finally the three books I read. So I actually only read three books the whole trip. Luckily they were all good. So I could talk about them. And these three, I all read on coconut Island after coconut Island. I was too tired to read anywhere else, but I read all three of these there and they were all excellent. Um, I think the best book I read though was uh, a book titled Ghost Soldiers, the epic account of World War II's greatest rescue mission. It's by Hampton Sides. And, and what this book is about, it, it's, I love World War II history. And it's a, it's a story I never heard of before. And I'm actually shocked there's not a major motion picture of, of this kind of story. But basically at the end of the war, the Allies were worried that um, the prisoners in Japanese camps were going to be, you know, exterminated before they could be freed. And because of this fear, uh, the army put together a special group. Uh, this is kind of the beginning of the Army Rangers. And their job was in the Philippines to do a camp raid on a prison camp raid to save uh, about 513 prisoners who were, who were survivors of the Bhutan uh, death march. And they had survived for like three years after that death march. 
and they want to go get them out of that hell. And it's it's a, a extremely wild story. I think I finished the book in like a day, maybe two. It talks about how you know uh, badass like the Filipino allies were that were helping with the mission. Um, there's kind of two storylines going at once. Actually, it's like the people that were captured, who were the prisoners, their story from being captured to the present day. And then the other side of the story is the people that are going to rescue them, the army rangers, and from, you know, when they're preparing for this mission to when they save them. So eventually, you know, those two storylines collide, and then you know both the people that save them as well as the prisoners. So I thought that was a really great way to do the book. Uh, so there's kind of two parallel stories going at the same time. They meet at the end, and then you know all the characters kind of meeting together. Great way to do it. Um, spoiler alert, they save basically everyone um it's an excellent read it's you know when i think of world war ii i do feel like the european theater gets a lot more attention you know d-day hitler um nazi germany i just feel like that gets a lot more attention but you know the pacific theater the fighting there i mean all the fighting in world war ii is just horrific and devastating but the fighting in the Pacific theater was just brutal. Um, the disease out there was brutal. That was taking lives as well. Um, and it gets talked about plenty, but I just, I feel like I don't personally get enough history from the Pacific theater side. And, and this was a great book to kind of give me a little more background than I, I would say I have. So excellent book, quick read, highly recommend. Again, Ghost Soldiers, the epic account of World War II's greatest rescue missions, Hampton Sides. The the, I guess, second ranked book, I would say, honestly, this is almost tied for first, is my kind of new favorite historian, Kenneth Millard. Uh, if you if you listen to my Africa recap, um, I read two of her books there, River of the Gods and River of Doubt. And I love them. Her This book was just as good. Um, topic was a little more random, I thought. So it's called The Destiny of the Republic, A Talk of Madness, Medicine, the Murder of a President. And this is about James Garfield, uh, a president who does not come up much in the history books because he got assassinated very early in on his presidency. And the book talks about um, Garfield's rise to the presidency and how he really didn't want to be the president. He just kind of got elected. Um, it talks about the, the history of this crazy guy who assassinated him and the guy who shot him twice uh, didn't kill Garfield immediately. Garfield lived for um, months after. But then the rest of the story is about the, the lack of proper medical care he got that killed him because I, they, many people think, and the book concludes that if he would have just got shot twice and they would have just left the bolts in there and just stopped the, the bleeding, bandage him up, he would have been fine. But it was the, the lack of proper medical care that actually killed him by infection because people were not sanitizing their hands yet. That was not a practice yet. That was actually kind of like looked down upon as a joke or like some kind of witchcraft. Like we don't need to sanitize our hands. So people are just sticking their dirty hands in his body, trying to fish out the bullet. Um, they're using unsterilized tools to probe him. They're hitting him in like his organs. So he ends up dying months later, um, mostly because of his care. But there's all these, again, they, they talk about his rise to the presidency. They talk about the guy who assassinated him. But then there's also big 
players in American history like Alexander Graham Bell who make a strong appearance because Graham Bell is trying to build this device to 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 find the bullet in Garfield because they couldn't find one of the bullets. So he makes a big appearance. Random things happen during this. Like when he was sick from the infection in the White House, the White House was super warm. They built the first air conditioner ever to cool him down. So that was like, I didn't know that's how air conditioning was invented to cool down James Garfield. Um, and the other thing I'll say about it, like, James Garfield, again, wasn't a president long, didn't know anything about him before I read this book. Seriously, other than he was a president. It's, you know, it's it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate he was assassinated because it seemed like he was a really good man who would have been a really great president. And I think history might have been much different if he was able to serve as the president. Um, he was very for equal rights for all American citizens. Um, he was someone who grew up really poor, who became president. So he had a humble background. So he's someone who understood the, you know, he didn't come from just some rich elite family. He was just an everyday common man. He just seemed like a, he, he fought in the civil war. He's a civil war hero. He just seemed like a good guy. And, um, it's sad that he's kind of lost in history due to his assassination. Um, so again, this is the third book I read by Candace Millard. Um, she only has one other book out that I haven't read, Here are the Empire, which is about Winston Churchill and him fighting in, in um, I think in a few war, or no, it might be just the Boer War in Africa. Um, but that's the last one I have to read. I, I might have to wait a bit to read that one because I was looking into when she releases books and it looks like Candace only releases a book like every five or six years. And the latest book, River of the Gods, just came out in 2022. So I'm probably not going to get a new book till 2026, 2027. But I'm a big fan of history. I love uh, Chernow, uh, who, of course, wrote Hamilton, but a bunch of other books. I loved uh, the late David McClellan, who recently passed away. Um, I was kind of scrambling, like, who's going to be my next author I follow? And, and Candace Millard. This third book delivered, she's three for three. So obviously she is going to be the person I read. As long as she writes books, I could not recommend highly enough River of the Gods, River of the Doubt, or this book, Destiny of the Republic. Honestly, River of the Gods and River of Doubt were so good. I think this might be my third favorite book buyer, but that does not mean by any means you shouldn't read this book. It's excellent. Finally, last book I read, it's a good book. It was a quick read, um, probably third though in my rankings. It's a book called 10 Innings at Wrigley. It's by Kevin Cook. And this book is just about really one game, uh, a game that took place May 17, 1979 in Wrigley, where the Cubs lost 22 to 23 to the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, this book had, you know, players like Mike Schmidt, Pete Rose, Bob Boone, uh, Dave Kingman, Bill Buckner. And talks about, you know, the Cubs history to that point, the Phillies history to that point, the game itself, and then kind of what happened to some of these players after. It's just a fun read. And as a Cubs fan, a Chicago guy, a sports fan, I enjoyed it. The one passage I want to bring up, though, is near the end of the book, they're talking about Bob Boone, the, the catcher uh, for the Phillies at the time of the game, and uh, the father of Brett Boone and Aaron Boone. You probably know them. His dad was also in the major league, so it's a baseball family. Raven. Anyway, Bob Boone was a catcher, a great catcher who won a number of gold gloves, was a number, you know, made a number of all-star teams. And they're they're talking about him 
in some article, it's like near the end of his career in like 88 or 89, I think, or maybe even 90. And Peter Gammons, there's a quote by Peter Gammons, and it says something along the lines of like, when Bob Boone, when Bob Boone retires, he'll be a sure thing to be in the Hall of Fame. Like this guy's in the Hall of Fame. And for the baseball fans listening that know this, like Bob Boone's not in the Hall of Fame. He actually never even got over 8% of the vote. And that was super, so intriguing. Like Peter Gammons is one of the most well-renowned names in baseball history for writers. And for him to make this conclusion, like Bob Boone, like he's going to be in the Hall of Fame when he retires. And for him not even get close, like it's so interesting how he had that opinion, yet the voters thought Bob Boone had no chance to be in the Hall of Fame. Long story short, I'm definitely doing a Bob Boone episode in the future. Um, but I thought that was super interesting. One of the best tidbits I brought out of the book um, that will kind of go to a, a final episode. Uh, I guess a future episode. So that is my book recap. That's by 3, 3, and 3. Um, so that wraps up today's podcast. Um, a little sports. Um, a lot of the trip. Uh, this week coming up, the Football Hall of Fame will announce their 2023 Hall of Fame class this Thursday. So next week, I will have a pod talking about that class and who got in. And then after that pod, we will go back to, you know, covering players like we do every week. Uh, but I got to cover that because I think there's some big names that are going to get in that are should be fun to talk about. But that's all for today's podcast. I'm glad to be back in America. Always miss it when I'm gone. Um, if you have any questions about Thailand or anything, feel free to you know email us at Pot of Fame, uh, tweet us at at Twitter at Pot of Fame. Um, if you don't already, please subscribe and follow to us, uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You know, follow us on Twitter, and we will talk to you next Monday. Take care.